Welcome everyone to this episode of Green Talks. Today, we have a topic on table that you all have been waiting for a long time now. The urgency of climate crisis couldn't be more relevant. So scientists and researchers are pushing policymakers to translate promises to action. I'm Thomas Setche, your beloved host once again from Green Hub Twente. It's time to discuss some core environmental values, such as climate change, climate justice, deliberative democracy and biodiversity conservation. Who else to talk about this? Then the assistant professor, Dr. Dominic Lenzi. This episode of Green Talks will be related to the SDG 14 up to 16, climate and environmental justice. Thank you, Dominic, for accepting the invitation. Thanks, happy to be here. Could you tell us a bit more about your background and where you're coming from? Uh, yeah, sure. So I'm an environmental philosopher. Uh, I work mostly on climate justice and on biodiversity uh, relating to environmental values. Um, and there's lots of questions in this realm that, that I work on. Um, and yeah, so my training is in moral uh, and political philosophy. Uh, mm -hmm. And I did this in uh, Melbourne, University of Melbourne in Australia, which is where I'm from. Great. Which part of Australia? So you're also from, from Melbourne? Yeah, also from Melbourne. So yeah. Great, great. All right. So right now you are an assistant professor in uh, environmental philosophy, correct? And yep. your research is, is, like you said, on uh, climate justice and deliberate democracy and biodiversity. But you also look at the philosophy side and ethics side of these, obviously. Yep. But um, yeah, so before we dwell into these and the, all the values and societal values of sustainability, let me ask you this. What is your most unsustainable guilty pleasure? Yeah, that, that's easy. It's probably cheese. Uh, <laughs> I, I really like uh, especially salty cheeses. And yeah, if, if you want to reduce your uh, climate impact, then mm -hmm. you should limit by, um, dairy and meat. Um, meat definitely is, is uh, number one, but dairy is also very important. So it's not the most sustainable thing, but yeah, I find it hard to cut that out. I don't eat meat though, so I, I'm a vegetarian in, in that way, but I'm not a vegan. Cheese is, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that's already a good start, but yeah, I guess, um, is that why you came to the Netherlands? Because of the cheese? <laughs> <laughs> I, it was a, no, but it was a it was a kind of incentive. <laughs> okay, okay, that's great, that's great. All right, so let's go into sustainability now. What motivated you to focus on this research on climate justice and uh, yeah, the environmental values? I mean, it's quite sustainable. It's related. Where, where does this come from? Yeah, um, actually, my kind of context in Australia maybe was was useful there. So Australia is a very hot country. Mm -hmm. It suffers extreme fires and droughts quite often and when I was growing up we were already seeing the effects of this the effects of a changing climate on the country and obviously it's much more severe now um, but at the same time when I grew up there was kind of a um, societal understanding that we should clean up the environment that we had degraded so Australia was one of the first countries that that um, had kind of uh, what we called clean up Australia programs where people mm -hmm. would volunteer and go out and like clean rubbish at the beach, go to the, go to the national parks and clean them up. Um, also like conservation was a big thing when I was a kid that there was a lot of um, attention to endangered species and things mm -hmm. like that. So yeah, growing up at that time, uh, environmental issues and sustainability were kind of around at the same time. Uh, so much of, 
of uh, the society in in Australia and like the uh, like the United States and a lot of other countries is incredibly unsustainable. So, growing up, I was very aware of this tension and learning more about the scientific uh, uh, scientific uh, facts about about the case exactly how unsustainable it was, how much of a problem it was mm-hmm. across many different dimensions. But I didn't really think of doing this with my career. I didn't really think of, a, of kind of specializing on this until I took a break between my, my bachelor and my, um, my master thesis. And I just didn't think about study and I was just <clears throat> thinking more about these, these world issues. And then at a certain point, I was like, well, why don't I just work on these things then? Mm-hmm. So, so that was the, the beginning of that. And yeah, and, and one thing led to another, and now that's what I do. So yeah. it kind of grew like that. But I would say I've always been aware of these issues since I was a kid. It's not like I, I learned them about them when I was 18 or something. So sustainability and environmental issues have always been around. But yeah, I, I decided only fairly late to, to focus on them as a career. Yeah, I mean, it's still an ideal path because people are looking, you know, all their life, what should I do? What's the best thing that I do? And you, you realize that, like, the urgency of all this and how important it is for you and has been in your whole life. And that's, that's really great. I mean, for myself, I don't know that much about how, what, like, how do Australians look at these? So it's also good for us Europeans to see, okay, it, it is, it is there, obviously, and we shouldn't just, you don't know, not look at it and maybe try to copy what the Australians are doing. Also to, to our, like, for example, when I was a kid, um, there was not that much we were doing to conversation, for example. So it's, it's interesting though, because with Australia, like the nature is dangerous. Mm-hmm. So it's a different sense to Europe. You, you mm-hmm. can't ignore, yeah. even at the beach, it's dangerous. If you just don't pay attention, if you go camping, you can get into serious trouble. So, we're kind of used to this, that there's dangerous animals everywhere and, and, you know, you can die if you're not careful. But at the same time, people pretend that they can live like these very unsustainable lifestyles and it won't have any effect. So there's this kind of dualism going on in uh, in the country. So I wouldn't say Australia is, is the best example to follow, but in some respects, they are kind of ahead of, of, um, of Europe. Um, in other ways they're behind though like Europe one thing that's very good in Europe in terms of sustainability is the design of cities Mm -hmm. cities are Mm -hmm. usually walkable or there's a lot of public transport and that's not the case in Australia so most of Australia is like car based and very spread out so it you know these infrastructure things also matter Mm. yeah I guess it could be influenced with with policy so yeah we we can talk about that definitely (laughs) But um, yeah, so I guess I, I see what's your role. What the, what does sustainability has in your life? What role does does it do? I mean, it had a role from a very young age, mm. and that that's how it came to your life. So um, let's go a bit more into into topic now. So climate justice. What what should be considered as climate justice? What is climate justice? Um, the way to understand climate justice is to think firstly about the features of climate change. So. Mm-hmm. It's a kind of problem that uh, people have contributed to for decades, for over a century, but very unequally. So some, some populations have contributed much more to the problem, some barely at all. The same is true about impacts of climate change. So some people, uh, especially the poorest people on Earth, are um, usually among those who are going to be the victims of climate harms. 
whereas the richest people can usually insulate themselves better from from um, natural disasters, from various kinds of uh, environmental effects of climate change. So climate justice cuts across the past, causing the problem, and also the future, the, the effects that are, that are going to, to mm-hmm. come. And it's really because of these features, questions about how to share the, the um, costs of climate change fairly has always been a question in, in relation to climate change, going right back to 1992 when the United Nations came together to uh, first make, it, make, a, make the process, uh, begin the process of doing assessments on climate change and to try to make a global deal about mm-hmm. uh, emissions. This issue of unfairness was there from right from the start. And so climate justice is about finding ways to balance uh, the, the uh, distribution of costs among uh, people uh, located differently across the earth and also future generations because future generations are most at risk of climate harm. So in a sense, we would think of them as the worst off which is interesting because if you ask uh, most classically trained economists, they assume that future generations by default will be better off because we, we will have economic growth and mm-hmm. they will have higher material standards. So this debate about the, the welfare of future generations between philosophers, economists and others has been at the heart of uh, climate justice debates as well since right back uh, 1992 from, from then on. Now I would say climate justice is about uh, the the extreme urgency that we have to do something about the problem. So there's there's a very small carbon budget left to limit warming to 1.5 degrees. That's probably not going to happen, to be honest. Um, but any any lower lower um, end uh, any any lower result we can uh, we can end up with is better. So. It's extremely important that we limit uh, climate change as much as possible. That also raises justice issues because mm-hmm. it's going to impose economic costs uh, to do it quicker. At least it might. And it might also mean, and this is a, a big debate in the climate space for a long time, it might also mean that countries that want to develop economically either can't develop economically because there's no emissions budget left or they have to do so in a completely different way. So the way that China developed cannot occur again, basically, because there's not enough emissions left in this, carbon, in this uh, global budget. So that's, that's also a kind of issue of, of uh, justice because Western countries did this. And no one, no one uh, knew that there was a problem with developing in this way after the Industrial Revolution, for example. China went this way too. If you imagine all developing countries going the way that China did, we have we have no chance of limiting climate change. So that's yeah. that's really the issue. Having said that, there are still lots of people in, in extreme poverty. So there's a there's a uh, there's also this element of unfairness that like addressing climate justice means that that either people have to develop economically in a different way, or they can't. And so you can see the kinds of cross-cutting issues we have here, both about causing the problem and responding to the problem. I see. Yeah, it, it really sounds like climate justice is about setting these moral responsibilities and um, yeah, obligations to people and trying to distribute them fairly. Um, 
it's also clear, I believe for us, why it's an important part of, part of climate action. So you really have to look at all the perspectives and uh, what does this really underlie. But um, let's talk a bit about more like how does, where does engineering come in? Where does, um, let's say, climate engineering come into this perspective? Yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a very hot topic. So um, what's known as climate engineering are basically a set of uh, techniques that um, do one of two things. So there's two possible groups here. One of them uh, blocks some incoming solar radiation. So it's mm-hmm. technologies that basically uh, artificially reduce the amount of, of warming that, that happens. Um, and there's another set which actually re- removes atmospheric CO2. So um, the, these second, uh, this second category um, and stores it, I should say, in, in some kind of long-term storage. So this second category is directly addressing the uh, driver of climate change, which is atmospheric emissions. Mm-hmm. The other one is blocking one of the effects, one of the principal effects. Now, um, you might think that this sounds like generally a good thing and we should do it. Um, but there's been a lot of concern about one or both of these, uh, these uh, forms of, of uh, technology for a variety of reasons. So one of them is a, a worry called the moral hazard, which has been around for a long time. And that's basically if you, and especially imagine I'm talking to a politician now, if you tell a politician, look, we've got this technology here and we can use this and some of the effect of climate change can be reduced. What, well, a lot of people have worried that the politician will then say, great, I don't have to make emissions cuts and <laughs> emissions cuts are unpopular politically, mm-hmm. so I don't want to make them anyway. Now I have this, this option and so I don't have to do it. And it, that kind of thinking has, has uh, well, there's a lot of examples of that kind of thinking in practice. So it's not just purely hypothetical, but ethicists have worried a lot about this kind of thinking being globalized. So what's to stop every politician thinking that way? And the other part of it is that um, every country, um, and even more so every individual, is only a small contributor to the problem. So why should they sacrifice their economic interests to address a global problem that they only contribute to a small degree to? This kind of thinking uh, gives rise to this moral hazard worry, which is that, well, if I can just do something, uh, you know, uh, use this this technology and, and get away from the need to decarbonize, then given these other uh, considerations that I, that make me unwilling to, to mitigate climate change anyway, mm-hmm. I'm very likely to do this. Um, and there's all kinds of other worries associated with that. So like the, the one, the technology that uh, dims some incoming solar radiation, for example, if we... If we would do it, the, one of the most prominent techniques anyway is to spray sulfur particles in the upper atmosphere. If we would do it, um, we would have to keep on doing it basically indefinitely um, until atmospheric emissions fall, which could be hundreds of years. Um, and if we ever stopped doing it, there would be a backlash, like the, the way that the, um, the Earth system is designed. So we would actually get more warming, kind of a, a counter reaction. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that could be extremely dangerous. So there's, there's all kinds of further issues ab- uh, that arise if you would uh, try to intervene in the functioning of the climate system. There's also political issues. I mean, who should do it? Yeah. Who gets to decide to do it? 
should would it be something that superpowers do mm-hmm. even superpowers that compete like china and the U- us how would they do this right so there's, there's all kinds of issues with this um the other form of climate engineering the one that removes co2 is less uh problematic in these respects because even if you built a power plant to do this to remove co2 in Enschede you don't affect the global climate you need thousands of these facilities all around the world to do that having said that there are still ethical issues so if you do this with uh with um biofuels so that's one way of doing it you need to grow them and then you need to find a place to grow them and imagine so some research especially early research on this was saying well we should just use uh global south countries to grow biomass mm mm-hmm. okay because it's cheap basically and and they have um good agricultural producti- productivity but if you do that you have other possibilities like making food prices go up which if you're very poor means you starve so there's all kinds of pr- geopolitical problems that arise from these things and they need to be thought about very carefully there's even a moral hazard concern here because um usually these technologies technologies that the ones that remove co2 are speculative they don't they haven't been tried really at scale there's like a demonstration power plant but not you know nothing nothing on yeah. the kind of right scale so basically this discussion comes from modeling so it's a future prediction that these kinds of uh, facilities could work in this way but of course we don't know that so this gives rise to again the politician saying well why don't we just do this in some decades right if we can remove co2 let's just keep going now and then we do it later the reason that people think this is dangerous is that there are these very nasty uh things called tipping points uh that earth system scientists tell us about where if emissions go above a certain threshold and the problem is we don't know exactly where these are but we know that they exist mm-hmm. then you get a non-linear change which is that the climate system changes from one uh, equilibrium into another and if that happens we don't know if it's reversible so if it's not reversible we're stuck with that new climate for about 10,000 years which is very dangerous obviously and we don't know if we don't know what kind of world that is basically so climate change itself raises these issues if we're too slow climate engineering also raises these issues about tipping points uncertainties Yeah. So on the one hand we want to probably so the the contemporary scientific literature is saying that now given that there's not much time left to to reduce CO2 um to keep within the the global carbon budget we probably need to use these technologies that remove CO2 to some extent. But uh we're not doing so fast enough, we're not mitigating fast enough. Uh so these issues are still there. um with the other form of climate engineering the this blocking sunlight form um that's extremely controversial so it's very unclear that that will ever happen or um yeah or who would do it but at at present um there was recently a decision in the United States by the Biden administration to give some um uh, millions of dollars to people to do research on this which is the first time actually that a that as I as I'm aware of a national government giving research funding to people to do this because it's just been considered too controversial. Various attempts to do this research have been shut down 
by local uh, people and by concerned citizens and so on. So who knows? Maybe this this proceeds. Maybe it maybe it gets done. But yeah, it's it's very unclear whether that that first form of climate engineering will will be used and under what conditions. The second one will definitely be used, but it's a question how it's done and how much we want to do it. So if you do a little bit of it, it's probably fine. Yeah. If you imagine that you're going to build 10,000 facilities or more, then you're talking uh, huge kind of logistic and geopolitical consequences. Um, yeah, so th that's a bit of the kind of debate on climate engineering. And you can see also how these issues of technology choice affect the story we tell about climate justice too, about responsibilities across generations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks a lot for getting into detail. I think this is a very interesting topic and uh, yeah, there's there's a lot to, to tell about it. But uh, now I also want to focus a bit more on the other side of your research, which is at one point you said, how do we make sure that everyone is being heard and that not only superpowers uh, take the decision for all of us? And uh, for that, you are researching this... Um, uh, the liberal democracy perspective, and um, can you can you tell about us what what that is? Yeah, so deliberative democracy is basically um, things like citizen assemblies, mini publics, um, citizen juries. Mm -hmm. These these panels that are organized to allow members of the public to uh, sit together and talk and make decisions. Ideally, to make decisions uh, about what should be done politically. So. The, the kind of starting point of deliberative democracy is a critique of representative democracy, which is what most of us have experienced, where you vote, representatives go to parliament, discuss. They might or might not listen to you. Probably they don't. Um, and there's, there's basically like moments when you can participate in politics, especially in, in elections, and moments where it's really not clear how you contribute to politics. Um, which is kind of the function. So representative democracy is exactly about representing the public so the public doesn't need to do politics every single day. Mm. Right? Could you give us a good example on this? Well, I mean, if I, I, I guess all the, all the countries of the EU have the representative system, right? So mm -hmm. you vote for your local member of parliament, you vote for your representative, they go to the national parliament, they should represent you, the constituents of your area, but who knows what they will actually say. Frequently they, they do and say what they want. Mm -hmm. um, and at a certain point, maybe maybe the people in the area vote differently and that person leaves. But the, um, the decisions made politically happen at a higher level than, than the input of voters frequently. So voters will, uh, if you like, give representatives a mandate. So kind of um, a legitimate... Uh, uh, reason to be making decisions, if you like, legitimation. But uh, the public isn't involved in the day-to-day -day business of politics, voting on particular laws all the time. That's something that the representatives do. Correct. Correct. So the critique of that is that the public is not sufficiently inf informed or involved in, in politics. And you can think about this in relation to um, uh, the recent problems with, with uh, democracies that we've seen about disinformation, polarization of voters, uh, you know, the, the rise of the far right, things like this, where there are all kinds of questions about what the public knows when they vote um, and whether, whether they're meaningfully involved in politics. And p 
people in political science doubt this. They they think that there's all kinds of ways in which our existing systems fall short of the ideals of democracy. So deliberative democracy is basically setting up these kinds of bodies like citizen juries, assemblies and so on to challenge that, to give members of the public a chance to contribute more directly to policy formulation. Um, so there's a big scientific literature now on deliberation, when it works, when it doesn't work. Um, but basically the idea of it is to improve the quality of democratic decision making. That's the idea. Now, in, res in relation to climate change, this is quite important because climate change is, is a global problem affecting future generations. Mm -hmm. And the problems with democracy that we already see at the national level are even worse for climate change because there's no obvious way that you could vote on global climate policy. There's, there is no such, no such forum. There's all, also in most countries, th as far as I know, all countries actually, there's no serious way to think about future generations when you're voting, right? So these mm. kinds of things are things that, that deliberation tries to tackle. Now, if we would apply this to a debate such as climate engineering, imagine we set up a deliberation platform to decide whether to do research on climate engineering, for example. Um, it's very important that these people are not experts to begin with because experts have agendas, they have a lot of knowledge, uh, and it's not per se democratic to have a uh, platform of experts debating what to do, right? It doesn't improve the problems with representative democracy that I was talking about. So the idea with deliberation is to meaningfully involve the public in an uncoerced way, so not manipulating them, uh, in actual decision-making. So make, making recommendations to parliament, for example, about whether some research should be done, mm -hmm, under what mm -hmm. conditions it should be done, where it should be done, these kinds of things. So there's a lot of scope for deliberation in relation to climate change generally. Some countries have started doing it as well as a, re as a reaction to problems with existing politics. So Ireland did it first and best in the EU and then there were deliberation platforms in Germany, in France, in the UK and elsewhere where countries are trying to involve the public more in this discussion. And it's also in their interests because as I was saying at the beginning, Changing your energy system, decarbonizing the economy is, is a very big structural adjustment. So it's got a big potential to, to create winners and losers in economic terms, right? If you do this without involving people, you get a backlash. And it's, it's very easy to see. And we've, we've seen examples of this where um, people feel left behind. People feel kind of um, disrespected because their place in society has been taken away. So deliberation offers a way of bringing people into this discussion in a meaningful way rather than just telling them, now this is happening and you have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. But wouldn't then global deliberation be even more efficient? Not like we don't have anyone left out. Because so far you haven't been telling me local or countrywide deliberation. But do we, do we have global deliberation? Uh, not really. Some people are doing research on it to see mm -hmm. what it would look like. Um, in principle, you could structure a global process to do deliberation. Um, it's difficult, though, because generally deliberation works best when a group has something tangible to discuss about. Uh, so 
should we build this facility in this area, in mm -hmm. our local area? Global uh, issues, though, global deliberation have has the problem that there's no global government, there's no global decision-making framework, really. And issues about my contribution being small uh, compared to the global um, and and also the the vast inequality that we have globally that some people are just way better off than others they've also contributed way more to climate change this means that that deliberation at the global level has to deal with these kinds of issues as as background features of injustice before mm -hmm. deliberation can actually happen so it's challenging um i'm not going to say it's not possible so people are looking into it and what what a global process would look like but there there are yeah, the, my reading of the scientific literature is that it's easier to do deliberation when it's about a concrete uh, issue, uh, especially in a local area, even a national context. But at the global level, uh, it becomes more abstract. It's more difficult to conceptualize the, the options that, that, that might be available and who might take those options, who might be acting. But it is, yeah, it is worth exploring further. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for showing us around in this perspective of democracy. I think it was uh, definitely interesting to hear about this. We're a bit short on time, but we still have one topic that I want to talk about, and that's uh, biodiversity and the environmental values. So tell us in, in quick, a few sentences, where does environmental values come into this and what is your experience with them? Yeah. So um, environmental values are basically about... Um, the ways that we relate to non-human nature, uh, the, the ways we value them, the moral significance that we give to aspects of, of non-human nature. You can think of national parks, conserving species, endangered species, things like that. Um, this is a long discussion in environmental ethics going back to, to the 60s and 70s, actually, when uh, the environmental movement really began. Um, and it's a challenge to dominant ways of doing ethics and politics, which is just to think about human beings and their interests. So environmental values were a big challenge to that. Um, it's a much more established field now. And there's a whole lot of um, sustainability science that's built upon this, this uh, early conceptual literature, thinking about and actually measuring, talking to people, the ways in which people respond to value non-human nature, uh, the kinds of policies they would like to see, for example, conserving this or that or, or uh, not conserving this or that. Um, so that's the bit, a bit of the context, but I've been involved in a, in a United Nations assessment on this topic uh, that just finished for the organization IPBES, which is an intergovernmental uh, panel exactly on biodiversity and ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. That's, that's mm -hmm. what the acronym stands for. And we were asked to review this environmental values literature and the implications for policy. So there's a, there's a lot in this report. Um, I'd encourage people to check it out if they're curious. But um, one of the main takeaways is there's a huge diversity of these values across the world. So it's not the case that humans just care about themselves uh, or that everyone thinks like we do in Western Europe. There's a big diversity of environmental values and worldviews around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and the other kind of key finding relating to, to value diversity is that most of these values are not considered in policymaking. 
in most countries. So the dominant value in most countries is what we call instrumental value, which is basically uh, usefulness to humans, usually money, but usefulness to humans. That's the primary way we look at uh, nat uh, natural assets, other species, and so on. So th this report was basically saying that that, that shouldn't be the case. Mm -hmm. You know, if we want to represent what people actually think, that shouldn't be the case. And that has all kinds of implications for policy, right? So a big, a big question at the moment is setting aside additional spaces for conserving nature, even discussions about what's called rewilding, which is recreating or creating completely from scratch, um, new ecosystems, even bringing in uh, species that have been extinct locally uh, from, from other places. At the limit, there's a very kind of, yeah, a bit, bit ethically questionable, but very high-tech discussion about reintroducing uh, extinct species like woolly mammoths and things like this. So th there's a lot going on in this rewilding space, but basically the values at stake are very important to think about because people proposing various kinds of conservation policies have different values. And if we follow only a certain set of values, we get a certain outcome. So we need to understand that and we need to understand the diversity that, that actually exists um, and try to represent that. So, so that's, that's kind of where my work on environmental values has gone lately. But I have a background thinking more about the philosophical issues relating to environmental values. So that's also kind of part of this discussion. Mm, uh, um, how does this relate back to climate justice? That's an excellent question. So um, basically, I, I would say there's two camps here. There's, with a couple of exceptions, there's two camps. There's folks who work on climate justice who think about human beings and their interests, instrumental values, justice for humans. Mm -hmm. Then there's environmental ethicists who think about non-human na nature, non-human animals. Uh, and these discussions kind of split at a certain point and they're still fairly separate from each other. So one term that we use to distinguish this is anthropocentrism, which is human-centeredness. That's, that's what it mm -hmm. means. So whether you are anthropocentric or not is the division basically here between people who are just interested in justice claims or at least think that justice claims related to humans are the most important kind of consideration, and people who don't think this necessarily, who think that the values of non-human nature have some kind of uh, important moral significance. So that's kind of where it is, that, that people working on environmental ethics go in this other direction, and people working on climate justice go in this more kind of human-centered uh, uh, direction. Okay, we are kind of running out of time, unfortunately. Um, so I'm, I'm going to ask you now to yeah, give us a little bit of a takeaway message. What should we, what the listener should take away from this podcast episode? Yeah, uh, so although what I've been saying is pretty, pretty uh, shocking um, and scary, um, probably the most important thing is, is a message of, of hope, actually, that we really need to pay attention to what we can still save, what we can still do. So things are urgent, you know, it, it's getting worse and so on. But every part, every tenth of a degree that we can lower warming, global warming is a huge victory. And we have to be fighting for every tenth of a degree rather than just doing what we're doing now. It doesn't seem to me 
that we're taking this sufficiently seriously as a crisis, right? If you compare it to COVID, for example, we can do this. We've done, we've done it before. We did it in relation to COVID. We need to take climate change even more seriously than that because the, the potential uh, dangers we're facing are much, much worse than for, for COVID and also permanent, as I was saying. So urgency, we really need to focus on every tenth of a degree. Great. Yeah, let's keep that in mind then. And uh, thank you very much for being here, Dominic. It was a pleasure listening to what you had to say. And um, for the listeners, stay tuned. More episodes are coming. Thank you very much. <laughs>